0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and
1: online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is a part of a long series we're doing on how Russian communism impacted American Christianity. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done... Go back and start at the beginning of season 3 for more context. There is a famous image from right before the American Revolution. It's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Inside a bold framed rectangle is a snake cut into eight pieces. Each piece is labeled like, say, SC for South Carolina or NE for New England, symbolizing the British colonies. The message is clear. That if even one piece is missing, even one colony, the burgeoning country will not live. Just as a snake could not survive with a section missing. We have to stick together. That's the message. It's about being a unified team, an encouragement, or maybe a threat. The caption, mostly written in caps below the segmented snake, says, Join or die. We don't often like to think of the United States in this way, as a country of coercion, one that puts down dissenting opinions, or uses fear to encourage unity. It's a better narrative to believe that all are welcome, and always have been. That is not the case. In the days before the American Revolution, the patriots who wanted separation from Britain bullied, cajoled, and silenced people who disagreed. Even Christian ministers. Christian language and scripture were used to justify the revolution. Strange for a book that argues that believers should turn the other cheek and obey their earthly leaders. We take the revolution for granted, sometimes touting that the U.S. is a Christian nation. But from its founding, the nation depending on how you view scripture, may not have been biblical at all. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truths.
2: God is a genius storyteller.
1: You're about to hear a verse from the Bible, and I want you to listen to it and then think about what it means before we continue. Like, come to your own conclusion. What is the blatant, obvious message in this passage? This is Angel McCoy from Angel Reads the Bible. I will be reading Romans 13, 1-5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. I can tell you read the Bible on the podcast. That was professional. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I like it. What does that passage mean from just a flat-out obvious reading? It probably seems like we Christians are supposed to obey our earthly leaders, the government. God put them in charge so we are supposed to follow their lead. Except, there were preachers leading up to the American Revolution who interpreted passages like this to mean the opposite of the obvious reading. Pastors like Jonathan Mayhew. Mayhew was an interesting guy. He was the first outspoken Unitarian in New England, meaning he did not believe in the Trinity or that Jesus is God. He was also not big on the virgin birth, original sin, or grace, and was a proponent of the idea that most religions lead to heaven. He lived in a time before radio and television. Ideas were spread not just by books, but in sermons. And a sermon in this era could have a real, long-lasting consequence. Jonathan wrote and delivered a famous one. It has been described as the morning gun of the Revolution. It was widely read not just in the colonies, but also in England. Future President John Adams praised it as greatly helping the rebel cause. So let's start at the beginning of that sermon, just after the reading of the passage from Romans.
2: The apostle enters upon his subject thus, let every
1: soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God.
2: The powers that be are ordained of God. Here, he urges the duty of obedience from this topic of argument that civil rulers, as they are supposed
1: to fulfill the pleasure of God, are the ordinance of God. But how is this an argument for obedience to such rulers as do not perform the pleasure of God by doing good, but the pleasure of the devil by doing evil? And such as are not, therefore, God's ministers, but the devil's. In other words, it's great to obey leaders as long as they are conducting themselves in a way that meets certain standards as long as they're our kinds of people. In Mayhew's argument, it would be foolish to do what people say if they're evil, because they are not acting in a way that we think is becoming of leaders. That was his argument and the argument of a bunch of patriot preachers. It's great to follow godly leaders, and if they aren't doing so hot, we don't have to follow them. I think a lot of us would go this route. The question is, does that argument make sense in the context of the passage? I've got some help with this question from Dr. Greg L. Frazier. He's the author of The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders and God Against the Revolution, The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the American Revolution. He also teaches at the Master's University.
3: The main difference between the Loyalist position and the Patriot position is that the Loyalists took passages at face value,
1: The Loyalists, of course, being the people who were loyal to Britain. They were fighting an uphill battle, preaching loyalty to an unpopular king. But were they the minority?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question for which there is a debatable answer. That's that's a subject of debate in the historical community. But to take John Adams, I like John Adams' characterization of it. I think he had a pretty good handle on what, what was going on and Adams estimated that about one-third of Americans supported the revolution, about one-third opposed the revolution, and about one-third were neutral.
1: A third? Of course, that's just based on John Adams' guess. And he was a patriot, so there's a chance that he may be making the numbers look better in his favor. The patriots were not concerned with an open discussion about how valuable kings can be. Instead, they silenced people who did not agree with them.
3: They engaged in a huge campaign to shut up the, and shut down the loyalist arguments. They, any printer that printed any loyalist materials, they would go. The mob would go in and destroy their shop and their equipment. They collected. They they sought out and collected all of the patriot pamphlets and sermons and so forth and burned them and destroyed them. In fact, there aren't basically any loyalist pamphlets after a certain uh, date, basically in I uh, think 1776, uh, because they couldn't get them published anywhere, and if they were, they were destroyed. They closed the churches of loyalist preachers. They literally um, chained them, chained the doors, and closed them so the loyalist preachers couldn't preach. Uh, they arrested lots of them for no crime um, well obviously because they didn't want the people to be persuaded by it
1: not just loyalists were persecuted the patriots also went after people who were neutral
3: Um, the patriots didn't allow people to be neutral especially ministers and um, they tried to smoke out uh, people that they thought weren't fully committed to the revolutionary cause and and you know how we celebrate, and the Christian America people in particular celebrate the, the calls for days of thanksgiving and prayer and so forth. Well, uh, several of those, including the first one, was actually, they were actually designed uh, as a ploy, as a tactic to smoke out loyalist preachers. It
1: was pretty simple to do this. Just declare a national day of prayer for the revolution. Hear ye, hear ye, I declare a national day of prayer. Everyone would then have to gather somewhere in a common area or a church. Let us pray for the coming revolution. Then all the Patriots had to do was see who wasn't there. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the Jacobsons, David Kingsley. Maybe look around and see who was enthusiastic and who wasn't. Oh, she's raising her hands. That's a very good sign. Then they knew who was a Patriot and who was not. And they could put those people in in jail. They used other methods, too. Like, they sometimes pretended that the British were planning an attack.
3: The British are coming! The British are coming! Ooh, that has a nice ring to it.
1: People around town would gather up their guns and horses and ride off to where the battle was supposedly taking place. But there was no battle. It was a trick. And whoever didn't show up ready to fight was thrown in jail.
3: So they had a number of ways of sort of smoking out Uh, loyalists who who didn't really want necessarily to be politically active uh, and wanted to stay neutral, but they weren't allowed to. They were locked up
1: for being loyal to the crown. It might be helpful to examine their case. Those of us who live in the United States sometimes find it difficult to question patriotism, but it can be helpful to do so because some of those political prisoners were persecuted for their view of Scripture, which was very different from that of the Patriots.
3: They took Scripture literally, literally in the sense that the author meant.
1: Greg's referring to passages like 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14.
2: Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or
3: to governors.
1: It clearly states that Christians are supposed to submit to their leaders, earthly leaders like emperors and governors. Patriot preachers argued that King George and his cohorts were not acting in a godly manner, so of course they did not have to follow them. But Peter and Paul, the guys who wrote the passages we've quoted, wrote while the Roman Empire was in charge, headed by a guy named Nero. I mean, you know Nero. That guy who burned Christians on stakes to light his garden parties? The guy who supposedly played the fiddle as Rome experienced a terrible fire, and then blamed it on the Christians. That guy was the guy in charge when those passages were written. Yeah, King George was difficult, but he didn't burn people for his pleasure. So, how could the patriot preachers twist those passages to fit their desired goals.
3: Well, it it all depends on your view of scripture. People do the same thing today. Uh, I deal with it all the time. Um, It depends on whether you believe that scripture is the word of God as it's written and that we ought to submit ourselves to it or whether you believe that scripture is general ideas that we can kind of manipulate. And what's really interesting um, is when patriot preachers, would look at a passage, say, Galatians 5, for example, and uh, Jacob Duches, for example, a very famous patriot preacher, actually did the opening prayer for the Continental Congress. Uh, He did a sermon on Galatians 5. Which says, among other things, it is for freedom that Christ has
1: set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It talks a lot about freedom. So Jacob Duches, the preacher, gave a sermon about this passage.
3: Um, in which he spent about nine pages explaining what Galatians 5 is all about and how it's all about spiritual freedom and not about political freedom. And then he just shifts gears and for the next 17 pages or so, uh, talk, applies it to political freedom. And um, and that's what, that's what they did, is they took any passage in the Bible that had the word liberty or freedom in it, and they applied it as political freedom, even though none of those passages were actually about political freedom or political liberty, because they had an agenda. He flip-flopped mid-sermon,
1: saying this passage is about spiritual freedom, and then turned around and made his case that it should be about political freedom as well, even though, by his own admission, it's not there in the chapter.
3: And uh, Jonathan Boucher says that the Bible doesn't that there's not a single verse in the Bible about political freedom, and I think he's right. I haven't found one. Yikes, right? That is tough
1: stuff. There are lots of passages where God talks about freedom, but they're referring to spiritual freedom. Yes, he does set his people, the Jews, free from physical oppression in the Old Testament. Yes, but there's also an acknowledgement that he was the one who put them there in the first place. It doesn't say anywhere That we have the right to freedom one term for this habit of ours is proof texting we come up with an idea and then go looking in the text for proof that that idea exists the other better approach is to read the text for what it clearly says then change your opinions based on that greg is right we proof text all the time in the modern church we go fishing for passages that suit our desires rather than face some tough facts. Like, revolution is not biblical. I'm
3: motivated a lot by uh, people who I think are are unable to divorce themselves from their culture. That that they are bound by their culture and what they believe um, about Christianity or about what it's appropriate for believers to do or not to do. My own take on the American Revolution is that the Bible um, opposes all revolution, uh, so that would include the American Revolution. If
1: Dr. Fraser's reading of the Bible is correct, and he is joined by a number of preachers from before the Revolution and now, then we have a big question to ask. If the Revolution did not line up with the Bible, then how can anyone call this a Christian nation? since it was founded contrary to biblical command. Whew, that is a scary question to ask because it feels unpatriotic or like we're being ungrateful for asking it. But that is the right we have in a free country. We can question these foundational myths. If the revolution is unbiblical, then we need to rethink our history It's possible that this nation, which I am grateful for, is not what some preachers and writers try to say it is. It's a nation started without biblical affirmation. We took the snake of the British Empire, cut it into pieces, and, by a miracle, those pieces sprouted a successful nation. We may not be able to call it a Christian nation, but it's pretty much a miracle that this experiment in political liberty has lasted so long, and for that, we can be grateful. In our own lives, are there passages of scripture that are super clear, that we try to twist to our own advantage, like the Patriot preachers did? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Tag the show on a comment on social media, or send your thoughts to me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. Special thanks to Dr. Greg Fraser. His books are The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders and God Against the Revolution, The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the Revolution. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll get every new episode as it's released. Truce is listener-supported. The beauty of podcasting is that it allows ideas like the ones we're covering today, ideas that challenge the established assumptions of our faith, to get out there. Traditional radio can't do that because it risks losing sponsors. Together, you and I can ask the hard questions. But I need your help to do it. My goals are to release this show full-time, drop episodes more regularly, and eventually hire some more reporters. We've got a ways to go, but together we can change the face of Christian media. You can donate at trucepodcast.com. My challenge to you this week is to pray for truce. There's a lot going on with this show, and I could really use some prayer to keep this thing on target. Special thanks to those who contributed their voices to this episode. People like Paul Hastings from the Compelled podcast, Eric Nevins of Halfway There, Angel McCoy from Angel Reads the Bible, and Bonnie Burns from Sex Chat for Christian Wives. A note on the advertisements for this show— I don't have the resources to investigate each one, not even the ones I voice. I do my best, but this is a one man operation. If you have any thoughts about that, you can email me at Truce at Yahoo.com. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is
3: Truce.
0: This episode was brought to you in part.